Specialty Story, session number 94. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week where I get the amazing opportunity to talk to different physicians about their specialty. And my goal when starting this podcast was to talk to physicians from every nook and cranny of the specialist world out there. And today's guest does not disappoint. Dr. Carly Snyder is a reproductive psychiatrist, something I didn't know existed, something I didn't know existed, and something she didn't know existed until she was actually in her psychiatry residency. We talk about her journey to reproductive psychiatry, what she likes, what she doesn't, and what that world looks like so that maybe you can become interested in reproductive psychiatry next. We start the discussion with how Dr. Snyder became interested in reproductive psychiatry to begin with. So I did not know reproductive psychiatry existed um, when I started residency. And I was a psychiatry resident and we do, you know, four or six months of medicine and pediatrics. And throughout that period, those four to six months, I kept on questioning psychiatry because I didn't really like inpatient psychiatry. I found it depressing and it wasn't how I had imagined um, my career would be. So I was on the pediatrics floor and there was a little boy who came in um, he was, I want to say three months old, plus minus. And he had been having, I mean, he had intractable epilepsy. He had seizures from the first day of his life and onwards. And he came in for uh, just, you know, he, he was coming in for the video EEG, but they knew there was nothing they could do for him. It was um, purely a question of how far along he was in terms of the process towards death. And it was heartbreaking. And I had a baby boy at home as well. And I really identified with his mom. I wanted to help her. There was like this very strong drive in me to help her. And I ended up sitting and talking to her for, you know, every day that he was in patient for a while, just about how she was doing. And, you know, she said no one had asked her, right? It wasn't something people, no one focused on her, right? There was this baby. And when she, when he was discharged, I connected her with a grief counselor who somehow literally worked across the street from her office. It was like the perfect setup. And to this day, I don't know what possessed me to think of a grief counselor, but it worked out. And I bumped into the neurologist from that case, you know, several months later. And he told me that, you know, this baby had passed away, but the mom, relatively speaking, did really well because she had this support network already in place and that they decided they were going to set up a program where every woman whose baby or child was dying was going to be connected with some form of a grief counselor, a therapist, 
what have you, where they would start to focus on mom as well. Hmm. And I had this kind of aha moment that, wow, I could actually affect change. I could help women. And probably in parallel to all of that, turned out one of my senior residents' wives, woman Malay Okiogrosso, uh, was doing something called reproductive psychiatry. So he said to me, hey, why don't you just talk to my wife? It sounds like you would really like what she does. And so I did. And took a while, but I set up an elective at Cornell where they have, and they still have, a women's mental health program. And I went and I realized that that was what I wanted to do, that it was, it had the perfect mix of um, women's health, women's mental health. Uh, there's a fair amount of medicine involved. You have to think about um, the mom, you have to think about the baby, you have to think about the family system. And you also have to consider, you know, is there a medical issue going on? You know, is there some underlying thyroid issue? I mean, there's so much going on and I love it. And I, more than anything, my patients do really beautifully in this incredibly, sometimes difficult, right? But anyway, you cut it, it's a huge transition in life. And to be able to support women through that process is incredibly rewarding. And so I ended up, so I did my elective and I realized I really loved it. And I joke, I never left because I literally went back every week after that, (laughs) after that month was over and for a journal club. And then when I finished residency, I was given a, one of those jobs. You're like, wow. Um, I was given the directorship of um, women's mental health program at uh, Beth Israel. And I was embedded in OBGYN and I still went to Cornell every week. It didn't matter. And now I've been an attending in the Cornell program for, gosh, several years because as I said, I never left. Never, literally never left. Never left. Yeah. So I usually ask this question a little bit later, but I want to skip to it now because somebody listening just like myself, it's like reproductive psychiatry, never heard of it don't have any clue what you're doing day in and day out. So let's let's start with who is going to see a reproductive psychiatrist? What what types of patients are coming to you? What are you treating? What are you what are you discussing day in and day out? So I see women technically really throughout the reproductive lifespan. So I I don't see teenagers personally. I, you know, maybe an 18 and 19 year old in general, but you know, it's, my practice is limited to adult women and the vast majority of my patients come to see me because of kind of, we can put it into like four subheadings, maybe five. I don't know. Basically you have women who have a history of depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, what have you, right? Some psychiatric illness and they may or may not be on medication but they're looking towards a planned pregnancy and they want to figure out how to, you know, optimize their mood while also minimizing risk, you know, and how can we strategize to keep them stable on or off meds, right? It depends on the patient um, and limit the risk from either exposure to medication and or exposure to untreated illness, Hmm. because you have to weigh both sides of it. Um, I have a fair number of my patients are in fertility treatment. 
and they are referred by, you know, reproductive endocrinologists, either similarly because they have a history of whatever, right? And the fertility guys are like, oh, go see Dr. Snyder once they see any medication, you know, any psych med on their list of medications, or because the woman's having a really hard time through the fertility process. Um, and then some patients come to see me when they're pregnant because they are experiencing mood symptoms, sometimes when they're postpartum. Um, and everyone in that heading tends to stay with me. So I have women who, come, who came to see me initially because they were thinking about a pregnancy. And now three kids later, I still see them regularly, you know, and which is incredibly fun and rewarding to see women's families grow and see their lives unfold. Um, some of whom have done so in parallel with my, with my own family growing, which is also nice. Um, obviously, I also have a cohort of women who are referred just for consultation. So they have their own psychiatrist, but their psychiatrist doesn't inherently feel comfortable making a decision about medication. They want to know what I would suggest. So I'll see the woman once or sometimes they'll come and see me once and then come back a few months later, just sort of as a follow-up. Um, but in that scenario, obviously, from a professional standpoint, you know, I, those women stick with their doctors. Um, and then I have a group of patients also who have severe PMS, you know, which is called PMDD. Um, and they come to see me because every month for a variable number of days prior to menses, their mood really changes to such a degree that their life is, their ability to function has really uh, been impacted. So I work with that group as well. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good reproductive psychiatrist? It's a great question. Um, I think one needs to have empathy in any specialty. So I think empathy is probably top of the list. Um, uh, you need to think from a holistic standpoint in terms of the whole person, but also the entire scenario and the whole situation that you're looking at. So if you're someone who's insanely myopic on an issue, it may not be the best option for you. Uh, you need to think about it from, you know, I think about my patients' lives, not just from the standpoint of uh, the specific medication and that's it, but you think about it from the standpoint of their family structure, of their future plans, right? What their past looked like. I mean, a lot of times if I'm, I'm talking to a woman about medication options, maybe she's not pregnant, right? But she says to me, well, I'm thinking about having a baby in two years. That still impacts my recommendations. Um, so you have to kind of think about it on, kind of take a big picture view on things. Mm. Um, you also have to just be able to consider multiple factors, including, you know, making sure there's no medical underlying medical illness going on that's actually masking or, or kind of um, either feeding into a, a psychiatric illness or is really kind of, I don't, I don't really love the notion of it being the primary cause of a mood stuff because it's rare, but, you know, thyroid disorders, for example, can really wreak havoc on a woman's mood in the setting of pregnancy and postpartum. So stuff like that. Um, I think you also have to be able 
for me, at least in my practice, the way I think about it is um, you can't be dictatorial in terms of what you, you know, you, the way you think is the way it should be. This is, you know, you're working with women who are incredibly anxious by definition because they're pregnant, right? Most of them, or they're planning a pregnancy. That's normal, right? Everyone's pregnant. Every, excuse me, everyone's anxious at some point in pregnancy. And their concerns aren't just for themselves, but they're also for this future baby. And while you as the physician may have a very rational approach to why you would recommend X or Y or Z, their anxiety means that maybe they're being completely irrational. And that's okay. You have to be able to stand there where they are and hear them and work with them to get to where they want to go, not where you think they should be. Um, And I mean, I think that's an important component to it is, and also frankly, not being too much of an alarmist, but also knowing when to freak out when (laughs) you should. Um, Meaning again, people have anxiety throughout, you know, in the form of planning, pregnancy, fertility treatment, pregnancy, postpartum, that is normal to some degree, but it shouldn't negatively impact your ability to function and enjoy life. Um, So being able to kind of take everything you're hearing, assimilate it into a picture and get a sense of what is going on that is actually appropriate versus what's excessive and determine it pretty quickly, frankly. Um, Because this isn't the kind of population women don't want to um, wait and see for a while, right? They're in this incredibly, um, it's a time of huge flux and change. And I think our job as reproductive psychiatrists is to support them through that process in whatever way, but support them in real time, not, you know, at their next appointment in six weeks. Now, you mentioned earlier talking about how you got to this this path of, of reproductive psychiatry, that you didn't like the inpatient general psychiatry. And so one listening may go, well, why did you decide to become a psychiatrist in the first place? Can you briefly talk about the, the path switch that you went on and why you went on it and why psychiatry? Well, so <laughs> briefly... That might be hard. So I had planned on doing plastic surgery. I really, in med school, I loved plastics. And I had, in medical school, all but written off medicine because when I was a third-year med student, I was sent, I I went to med school at NYU and was at Bellevue and there was a guy who had come in with fevers of unknown origin. He had been in Senegal for a while prior to that and came back and then started spiking these fevers. And he was admitted to the floor typically reserved for patients with TB. And his, the plan was to discharge him because they couldn't figure out what was wrong and he seemed relatively stable, but his LFTs came back really high. So I was obviously the lowest person on the totem pole and I was told to go grab, you know, a hepatitis panel. <laughs> from him. And so I went in and I was drawing the multiple vials of blood and he pulled 
the needle out and was like, you know, he takes a butterfly out and blood's just going everywhere. And he's like, I'm done. And I had only gotten through like two vials or something. And I was like, I can we please just wait? And so he kind of decided he would wait another minute and get a, another vial or two down. And I put the needle back in, and he had basically no veins in his arms. He had like one or two in his hands. And I made the distinct mistake of holding his hand with mine, like holding his hand down, the one that had the butterfly in it. And he took the needle out of his hand and jabbed it into mine and said, doesn't feel comfortable, does it? And I was like, no, no, it doesn't. Anyway, it turns out that he had hep B, hep C, and HIV-2, which is was the cause of his fevers of unknown origin. Um, so I was on a really nasty cocktail of medicines, of antiretrovirals for three months or so because HIV-2 is it's actually, at least back then, it was... Senegal was one of only a few places where it was actually more common than HIV-1, but they didn't really have a great sense the time of how they should prophylactically treat me. So I was on a gazillion meds and including some that I think are off the market now because they were so bad. Um, So after that whole experience, I was like, I'm not going into medicine. Medicine is off the table, period. Like I just did not want to have anything to do with the specialty at all. Um, but my next rotation was surgery and it was sort of one of those like sink or swim things. And I jumped in and I loved it. I just, something about it, I just really enjoyed. Um, and I married a neurosurgeon and during my third year, actually a medical school, same time. And, um, I was gung ho plastics. And then as I finished medical school, Having spent my fourth year doing plastics rotations, um, I was also about to have a baby. And then I had my son and I had this, um, and I had already planned on taking a year off uh, between med school and residency because my husband did a fellowship up in Toronto. And I had this weekend where I freaked out, like what would happen if I wasn't home for breakfast all the time? Something about that really upset me. So I decided to kind of course correct, so to speak, but I didn't want to do medicine. Like medicine for me at the time was really distressing a concept. So, and I didn't want to do another, you know, surgical subspecialty. So there was, there was psych and my dad's a psychiatrist. Uh I had liked my psychiatry rotations. I mean, it wasn't difficult. Like I thought, wait, what the hell? (laughs) It was sort of one of those, okay. Um, so it was sort of a, it was nothing where I went into med school or, you know, or even applying to psychiatry where I was incredibly passionate about psychiatry. Um, and then when I started it, as I said before, I found inpatient psychiatry difficult um, from an emotional standpoint. I, you know, I, it was, I went to, my residency was in New York City and, Patients are obviously very, very sick, and we had a lot of frequent flyers, but there was not much we could do for them, and they didn't have social supports, and it was very different than what I had anticipated it being like, um, in part because I had done my, my psych rotation at Lenox Hill, which was a different 
kind of population than what I was seeing. And it was eye-opening to me. It was so sad. It was, um, and I felt very powerless to help these people who really needed help until I found, you know, first, I think until I found my footing, number one, right? Once I felt more comfortable in psychiatry in general, uh, I liked it more, but also just finding my niche within it. Now I love it. What does a typical day look like for you? Hmm, it depends on the day. So I have, I now have three kids. And um, after my third was born, she was a preemie and had a very hard first year of life medically. And at that point, you know, as I said, my dad's a psychiatrist and he said to me, listen, why why are you in private practice by yourself in your own office when you could come and join my practice? And I said, okay. And he said to me, and honestly, why are you working full time? You don't need to right now. You need to focus on Penelope and your other kids, my baby's Penelope. And he was right. I, I was pushing and pushing and pushing, but I was also pushing to be, you know, as present a mom as I could be. Um, and psychiatry, I think of anything has an amazing amount of flexibility if you, you know, depending on how you structure your practice. So these days I work in my office two days a week. And those are two like insanely filled days where I'm there from, you know, roughly eight until I could be there till seven till eight. It depends. And, you know, I choke with my assistants that if they give me a break to run to the bathroom, then it's like a really low, it's a slow day. Um, I just have back to back to back patients throughout the day, but I tend to see patients, you know, occasionally they'll come in for a 15 minute quote medication follow-up, but it's insanely rare that it actually is 15 minutes. People tend to want to linger. Um, the vast majority of my patients I see for 45 minutes. Um, because what we're talking about is, is so important and there's information and it's not just about how they're feeling, which is incredibly important, but also how they feel about treatment. How do, what questions do they have about the risks, the benefits, the alternatives, what have you, the dosing as pregnancy in terms of pregnancy and, you know, and also I, be, I become a safe place for women to come and talk about parenthood, for example, I'm a safe place for them to come and talk about, you know, like their fertility treatments, their frustrations with the whole fertility process or their marital issues as it relates to the fertility process or, you know, in pregnancy, you know, their struggle when people are, you know, giving them all this advice and what have you, right? Like, so it's not just a question of um, pharmacology at all. A lot of what I do is um, supportive from a, you know, as someone who's been there, but also who understands kind of the, all the different facets to what's going on in their lives in terms of hormones, in terms of the mood changes inherently existent with the various stages of uh, parenthood, um, pregnancy, et cetera. I can be a place where they can come and a, talk through what they're experiencing. B, I can normalize when it's appropriate. And C, I can also take a step back and say, hey, you know what? This is doesn't have to be this hard. And 
we can work through it together. So that never happens in 15 minutes, basically. Um, Maybe my most, most patient 15 minutes, but that's really rare. Um, And then the rest of the, you know, so that's Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I tend to see a fair number of, you know, new patient consults each week, plus my old patients. And I have a radio show on Wednesdays and, you know, I prep for that. I, I have time to do a lot of writing, um, which is not something I ever thought I would be interested in doing, but I end up writing a fair amount of parenting related stuff. Um, and I get to hang out with my kids. Although as they get older, they're in school more, but yeah. What is balance? What does call look like? Uh, technically it's 24 seven. Meaning, well, yes and no, I shouldn't say that. Because I'm in a practice, um, it's not really 24-7 in so much that if I need one of my partners to, you know, deal with something for me, if I'm, they will. Um, But I'm the only reproductive psychiatrist amongst us. Um, Everyone else does child, adolescent, and adult. So... In truth, I mean, technically it's 24-7, but at the same time, you know, there are a few things that I can do in the setting of an emergency from home, right? If someone has postpartum psychosis, they need to go to the hospital, right? Their partner, someone needs to call 911 and get them to the hospital because that's going to be the safest place for them. And part of what I do is also educate people in advance. So there isn't kind of a question mark about what, what to do. So knock on wood, I mean, I, so he's like, don't say you're going to have a quiet call when you are about to start call, but I should say, but nevertheless, I I'll say, I don't get, you know, SOS calls or, you know, all the time at all. Yeah. It's very rare. What does the training path look like to become a reproductive psychiatrist? It's variable. Um, so there are a few fellowships, not many, um, I think a lot of times you kind of do what I did where you make your own path or you, you find an elective, you find a mentor. Um, and as I said, I, I'm an attending at Cornell now and they have a rotation for med student. I'm sorry for residents. Um, but people, I think people approach it in different ways. Some people go through CL. Um, What's CL? I, consultation liaison. Sorry. Okay. They do a fellowship in that. Um, and sometimes you just have a mentor who supports you through the process. I, I have a couple mentees through the work I do at um, Beth Israel still. And one of them actually is doing a child and adolescent fellowship. And at the same time is trying to see as many uh, reproductive patients as possible. And, you know, she just calls me when she needs me, basically. So. It's variable, but there are fellowships available. You know, there are also, we have conferences and if you want to learn about it, it's, there's more and more information readily available to do so. How big of a field is it? It is not big at all. We are, I mean, I know it's, it's pretty rare that I've never heard of someone who legitimately does what I do. Meaning there are people who will say, oh, I do reproductive psychiatry, but they do, you know, lots of other things too. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people who are really focused on this, you know, we have a listserv, for example, 
It's called the repro serve. And the, I either have met in person or I, I know via, you know, email threads and, um, via patient, you know, papers that they've written. Basically I'd say 75% of the people on there. Um, so, and that's covers the repro serve has clinicians from around the world. Um, the only caveat is I'm on, I used to be on the board for postpartum support international, and now I'm on the president's advisory committee and PSI is, um, the leading resource for women and their families who are suffering from various perinatal mood disorders. So I do have an in, in terms of just connecting with all of these specialists, yeah. I guess, considering myself a specialist too. Um, but we're still a really small field. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't know that we exist, which is obviously really unfortunate for people who are suffering. And, you know, they're, they're unsure how to, where to turn and or they're getting bad advice, which frankly still happens too often. Yeah. Do you see any reproductive psychiatrists further subspecializing their practice into some sort of niche? Um, we're pretty niche at this point. I think there are some people who are more focused on PMDD, um, who do more research on it, which is frankly incredibly fascinating. There are a few people who are specifically interested in postpartum psychosis. And again, that's very research driven. Um, there's, you know, I think most of us are are treating what I was talking about. I don't know if I don't think as many people see fertility patients in terms of um, a fair amount of my practice. I'd say a third is fertility focused, mm-hmm. which may not be exactly the norm at all. Um, so that I guess you could say one could subspecialize there as well, but. You know, if you see a fertility patient, they hopefully get pregnant and then now they're your perinatal patient. So there's a huge amount of overlap and blending that happens. And there are definitely people who also subspecialize in more perimenopause related mood disturbances. Um, But those, you know, can't speak for everyone, but I think it's pretty rare to find someone who only sees, you know, women in the perimenopausal phase of life. For the osteopathic students listening to this or, or maybe residents, do you see any sort of negative bias towards DOs in the field? No, I don't believe so. Yeah. Not at all. Um, I think we're a pretty welcoming group. I, there's not much bias at all. Yeah. With such a small community of reproductive psychiatrists, how do you get the word out to the primary care providers that you are out there doing your thing? And what do you wish they knew about reproductive psychiatry so that they can help their patients better? Such a great question. Um, so I can answer that from two different standpoints. I can, from an individual and on, and then also from like a larger um, global standpoint, systemic, whatever. Um, personally. I, at this point in my career, I don't do much. I meaning I know OB, there's like a core group of OBGYNs and reproductive endocrinologists and endocrinologists and um, there are a couple rheumatologists and psychiatrists. You know, we, I have a pretty 
sound referral network at this point. Um, I'm also very lucky to have a, a smaller group. We all are colleagues and friends and we, you know, we go out for dinner together and we encompass several subspecialties that really support women within this, the same phases that I see. So, which is great. Um, it's really good for patient care as well, because when one of us sees the, a patient, then refer to the other one and we, you know, we call each other and say, Hey, what's going, you know, it's, it's very easy to collaborate together. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think when I was starting out, I definitely, you know, I went to every conference and I, I just walked up and I, you know, introduced myself. And I was also lucky enough that I was on, you know, pretty early in my career, I got on the PSI board. So I had that connection. Um, and I, as I said, I worked as um, embedded within OBGYN. So I also had those connections. Um, but I think it's kind of hustling. Like you just, you know, when you meet a pediatrician, for example, if I meet a pediatrician, I, I, my goal is for them to appreciate that I'm available for their patients. Um, in addition to learning about their practice and getting their card, I do, you know, end up going to coffee with a lot of people. and a lot of people are just sort of interested in what I do because they don't really know it exists on a much larger standpoint from a, I helped with the um, creation of a online module. There are several modules. It's an online course for postpartum support international for primary care providers specifically. Mm -hmm. And it's a two day course that can be done online. There's also separately a two day course um, of lectures, one which I've, I mean, I've given some of the lectures myself, um, but it is specifically for frontline providers so that they can feel more empowered and they can understand perinatal mood and anxiety disorders more and treat accordingly. Um, and I'm also through PSI, we have a um, consult service. So right before we got on the, the show, I had a, you know, a consult from a physician who had a question about a patient who she was seeing and she just didn't know what to do. So she called our consult line and, you know, she got me. Um, and I think what I want people to know is that we exist, that um, reproductive psychiatrists are specialized in treating women throughout, you know, from for, throughout their reproductive life cycle. but. Um, most importantly to realize that when in doubt, rather than stopping some, you know, if the, the go-to for a long time was if a woman said I'm pregnant, people would say, oh, stop your medication, right? That was like the knee-jerk response. And save for a few medicines, right? Like, for example, Depakote, which is incredibly teratogenic. And I mean, I, I think we should follow, you know, the lead of several European countries where they actually don't prescribe it to women of reproductive age because of the degree of teratogenicity. Um, in most scenarios, there really is a risk benefit discussion to be had between the risk of untreated illness versus, um, and the benefit of medication and vice versa. Um, so that knee jerk response of stop your medication can actually be far more dangerous and 
present more risk than remaining on medication. Um, but it, it also, you know, look, pregnancy is a, a very dynamic time physiologically, and you have to keep up with the physiologic changes that occur in order to keep a woman stable in terms of changing her dose and what have you. So I think the first thing is to just realize that we exist as a resource and to seek us out if you have a question rather than, you know, encouraging a patient to de facto stop medication. Now, sometimes they should, but in general, that's not the go-to answer. It really depends on a you know woman's unique history, where she's at now, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah. You mentioned endocrinology, OB, uh, I'm sure uh, other primary care physicians. Are there, are there any other specialties that you work closely with? Well, so pediatricians mm-hmm. are, because obviously, you know, they tend to see a new mom far more far earlier and then more often than an OBGYN does. Yeah, that makes sense. I was, I was trying to figure out, I'm like, why pediatricians? I'm like, oh, they're interacting yeah. with the, the mom two days after birth. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, there's a push now, which is great, for some kind of check-in visit between that zero to six-week mark with an OBGYN. But often that can be on the phone. It doesn't have to be in person. And you know, the pediatrician really does become and is still the first, you know, that's your frontline provider because that doctor is seeing mom yeah. and baby. And if that doctor's not seeing mom, the question is like, what's going on, right? Who, where's mom? So pediatricians are big. You know, I, I definitely interact with some rheumatologists as well, especially for my fertility patients. Um, but, you know, and internists and other psychiatrists. Yeah. Are there any special opportunities outside of clinical medicine for a reproductive psychiatrist? Well, yeah. I mean, there's always research, right? I think that our field is one where research has been exploding, which is awesome. Um, there's, so there's a lot of room for that. Um, if one is interested in, writing papers and what have you. Um, There's, as I said, I do a lot of writing. I think that people, because there are so few of us, there is great opportunity to help people without even seeing them by virtue of writing about what you want others to know. Um, And that can be for lay people or for other physicians. Um, I think you can kind of do whatever you feel best with it. It's a very, you know, you make your own path. So, you know, I mean, as a side gig, I have, I have a business with uh, my business partners an acupuncturist and we're developing a nutritional bar line of food, you know, food for women. Mm -hmm. And I definitely use a lot of my 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 expertise in terms of formulating when we were formulating our different bars totally thought about what you know mood and hormones and all of this stuff so you kind of can really find lots of different ways to use your practice yeah what do you know now that you wish you knew before going into reproductive psychiatry 
that it exists. <laughs> um, that would probably be the first thing. Um, I mean, that's the biggest thing is obviously that it exists, but also um, to approach each woman as the unique individual she is rather than thinking about it purely from like which medication is best, da, da, da. but first listening to what she thinks, what she wants, where she's at before presenting options, right? Because ultimately it's not my body. It's hers. It's not my future baby. It's hers. And my job is to present all the information that's available now and then allow her to make the an informed decision. Uh, and I, obviously I had some sense of that when I started of, as well, but through seeing lots of women and also, frankly, you know, going through my own experiences as a mom and, uh, you know, having experienced um, pregnancy loss and being a patient in that scenario and feeling what it's like to be on the other side of things. Um, I have an even greater respect for an understanding of the sense of autonomy that women should have. and that my job is really to enforce that, not to ever, ever have anyone feel like it's being taken away. What do you like the most about being a reproductive psychiatrist? Oh, I love, I love that my patients get better. And when they do, they find joy in motherhood. And that's pretty awesome, right? Like parenthood is by definition, it's not easy, right? It's, it shouldn't be. They're little people. They have opinions and um, their kids are not robots. So by definition, they're never, you know, they're never going to hundred percent be easy, but parenting is a magical thing. And it's so sad when someone isn't seeing that magic where they really just feel pain in the whole process and being able to help a woman such that now she is enjoying being a mom and her, enjoying her life as it, it as it has changed, and now she can own her decisions and feel good about her role as a woman, as a you know, as a partner, as a mom. All of these things—it's so rewarding. And when women walk in, they're like, you know, they want to give me a big hug. That's the greatest feeling. It's awesome. What do you like the least? Hmm. Uh. That's a great question. What do I like the least? Um, well, I don't know. I don't think anything specific to my subspecialty, frankly. There's nothing about it that I don't like. Um, I think, yeah, I can't think of anything specific to my subspecialty. Obviously, in medicine, I don't think any of us like the paperwork, right? <laughs> and the covering your ass, you know, like the kind of, the need to write things just to, to make sure that you've dotted every I and crossed every, you know, yeah. even when it's unnecessary, but I don't think that's special to my specialty yeah. <laughs> that's across the board. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, I mean, the thing that I like the least, I guess, in my subspecialty is, and this frankly, again, can be found in any specialty, but when someone, one of my patients is really sick, it's look, it's scary. 
right? I have, if, you know, if I have a woman with postpartum psychosis, I'm, she's got a 5% risk of suicide, a 4% risk of infanticide. Those are legitimate risks. That's, you know, and I definitely have nights where I'm anxious. I'm worried for my patients, you know, and when do you say you need to be hospitalized versus when do you say, okay, you don't want to be hospitalized, but you know, how are we going to figure this out for your safety, et cetera? Yeah, that, that's not fun. Um, but when they get better, which they do, that's awesome. It's a great feeling. Do you see any major changes coming to the field that somebody should be aware of? Um, well, I think... Uh, politics aside, so not going on a larger <laughs> specific to the field. No. I mean, I think it's just growing and growing and expanding in really positive ways. There's, as I said, there's more and more data and there's more and more research supporting what we do as being incredibly important, both for mom and for her, her baby from an emotional standpoint and also from a physical standpoint. So, and you know, there was a recent uh, medication, just uh, it hasn't actually launched yet, but it's got FDA clearance, the IV formulation for treatment of postpartum depression, which is really exciting. Um, and hopefully they're going to have an oral formulation, which would be a really exciting thing as well. So there are, you know, new treatments that are being offered and which will let us help women that much faster get better that much faster. And I think there's more and more understanding of the different subtypes of, you know, antepartum and postpartum depression and anxiety and the different causes and how we treat, you know, gets even that much more, um, like we can hone in specifically on various symptoms, et cetera, when we know the underlying mechanisms. And I think we're increasingly getting great data on the underlying mechanism. So I think the field is just getting better and better. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a reproductive psychiatrist? Yes, I would. hundred percent. Absolutely. Any last words of wisdom for the pre-med or medical student or, or even resident out there thinking about reproductive psychiatry now? Definitely come and, you know, find someone to shadow, check it out, right? It, I think it's a, I love my field. I love what I do. It's one thing to read about. It's another thing to do it. And I think it's an amazing opportunity. So, you know, as I said, we're a friendly bunch. Find us and, you know, come in and, and check out what we do in person. Um, because you have to really like working with moms and women who are going to be moms and who are, as I said before, who are anxious, but it's to some degree, a normal level of anxiety. Like, you know, there are some people who are more or less interested in working with women that I love it. I think they're the best you know, population to work with. Um, but I would say, just check it out, check out everything in person. I think the best thing to do in med school, definitely. And, you know, pre-med even more so is have an open mind and really see what pulls you. Um, 
I clearly got lucky in the end. My mind was not so open when I was in med school, right? Like I kind of closed doors for myself. And I, I'm still really glad with where I ended up. But I think if you really go into every rotation with a, you know, open mind and just kind of check it out and see what you think rather than having any kind of predetermined sense of where you should go or what you should do, then you'll find what you are meant to be doing. Have fun with it. All right. There you have it. Again, that was Dr. Carly Snyder, reproductive psychiatrist, talking about her journey from plastic surgery to reproductive psychiatry and how basically she was lucky she found it because this is what she fell in love with. So hopefully this opens up your eyes to a new world in the psychiatry world. And as a primary care physician in the future, some of you out there may now know that there's this other field that you can refer your your patients to. I hope you have a great week. We'll be back next week with another great guest. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. 